Seth Richardson is back on the podcast after two months away. He got so burned out by the election, he went to Hawaii. We haven't heard from him since, but he's in the <laughs> recording today. It's a Wednesday. We're talking politics. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Seth Richardson, as well as Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. Happy Wednesday. Happy, Happy Wednesday, Wednesday, everybody. I should, I should probably tell everybody I was not, I did not abscond to Hawaii for two whole months, but I did have a lovely vacation. I, I When I saw they were having a blizzard in Hawaii around the time you're there, I thought, wow, Seth's going to be there when they get a foot of snow. But you later told me that you missed that by a day or two. Yeah. It, it's good to not have a blizzard when you're in Hawaii. I know it would have been memorable, but you don't want to do that. So let's begin. We have breaking news on a Wednesday morning. The two Democratic candidates for governor are announcing their running mates today, and one has a Northeast Ohio connection. Seth, who are they? So, yeah, both of the Democrats running for governor, John Cranley and Nan Whaley, are announcing their running mates today. Uh, John Cranley is, you know, selected uh, Teresa Fedor from uh, Toledo, the Toledo era state lawmaker. And, yeah, Northeast Ohio connection with Nan Whaley, who selected uh, the vice president of Cuyahoga County Council, Cheryl Stevens. So trying to tap into that Northeast Ohio uh, Democratic coalition up here Two two very interesting um, selections. I, I do think so. What um, what do we know about Cheryl Stevens? She she was the former what Cleveland Heights deputy mayor mayor who became the county council person. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of like progressive credentials. She's, you know, from everybody I've talked to pretty well liked in the party. She's got connections up here. So I do think it's a pretty, pretty smart selection, all things considered. And, you know, I, I think it can't go unsaid that it is interesting because to, to my knowledge, this will be uh, the first all woman ticket in Ohio for governor, um, which is, I think that's very fascinating. You know, the state has never elected a woman governor. Um, you know, we had, you know, Nancy Hollister was governor for around two weeks between uh, George Voinovich and uh, uh, Bob uh, Bob Taft, but that's, that's really it so far. So having, a, you know, we've seen the Democratic Party has become, you know, more uh, woman, uh, you know, uh, centric over time. So I think that there's maybe that, that sort of, they're trying to tap into that a little bit, so to speak. And with, uh, you know, with Teresa Fedor over John Cranley, I think that, you know, probably the what's what's going through the minds there is that John Cranley for a long time was anti-abortion. And I think to kind of head off some of the criticisms that he's going to face over the next, you know, five, six months until we get to the primary, uh, you get someone like Teresa Fedor, who has been one of the most outspoken proponents of access to abortion and uh, abortion rights in the state. And I think that uh, that that may help kind of soften some of those blows that Cranley's going to face, not to mention just the geographical uh, aspects of it. You got two candidates from Southwest Ohio who are kind of trying to tap into other Democratic strongholds in the state. I know, but is it a mistake for him not to really come deep into Northeast Ohio? Yeah, you'd think that you would you think both of these candidates would want to tap into Cleveland or, or maybe even Columbus, right? Because you're you're both in southwest Ohio. You'd imagine that Cranley maybe has a bigger base just by being the mayor of a bigger town, although Nan Whaley's probably a little more widely known just from, you know, some of the high profile incidents that happened down in uh, Dayton, you know, obviously uh, you know, became kind of a national figure after the shooting in twenty nineteen. Uh and you you'd think the smart move would be to come up to northeast. Ohio, find somebody who can really tap into the base up here and at least maybe try to split it so you can, you know, focus maybe some of your efforts elsewhere. So, yeah, I do think there's a risk there. 
the question is, is does Cheryl Stevens have enough pull in Northeast Ohio to kind of completely box John Cranley out of North of, you know, the Cleveland area and whatnot? I, I don't know if that's the case or not. I, I actually I think that this is going to come down to who's better at messaging. I mean, look, the Democrats so far have failed to use the biggest scandal in state history, House Bill 6 and the first energy corruption effectively. Their messaging has been disastrous. I think if the Republicans had that on the Democrats, it would have been so much more effective. So this is going to come down to which of these two candidates is better at getting across what's wrong with Ohio and how they can fix it. And in the HB6 thing, Cranley's already got the edge because he's basically said, I'll abolish the PUCO and basically start over. And you haven't really heard as much from Whaley about that, but we'll have to see. Uh, I, again, Cheryl Stevens isn't that widely known in Northeast Ohio, but like you said, she's liked inside the party. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The people who lead Cleveland City Council committees have a lot of power, and every four years we see a shakeup. Who did new council president Blaine Griffin put in charge, and how did he reorganize the entire approach? Laura, some interesting names and kind of a serious reorganization to the committee structure. Well, that's the thing. We're not just naming new people to those committees. We are basically changing the way that the, com the committees are supposed to work. One that's not changing is public safety, which obviously has a huge role in Bibb's administration coming in with all of the gun violence in the city. But that is going to be chaired by Mike Polensic. And there's going to be an effort, he says, to a collective effort to quit vilifying the police and improve training accountability and transparency. And that they're trying to figure out a way to, to fill the open positions in the police department. So I think we're going to be talking a lot about that come the future. The finance department is not going to be just the, or sorry, the finance committee is not just the finance committee anymore. Um, that is very powerful because a lot of the legislation has to go through it because it all costs money. And the goal is to open this up for diversity, equity, and inclusion and kind of examine every bill that comes through there on how the lens of how it affects the uh, community at large. So that'll be interesting. Um, the well, health but on, on, I mean, that is the last stop. I mean, when a piece of legislation gets introduced, it might go through one or two or three other committees, but before it gets to the big vote on the floor, it goes through there. And it sounds like Blaine Griffin, who will run that committee, is going to use that final stop to say, how is this providing equal access to wealth for all? Right. Which is, I mean, that is really opening up this discussion and examining it in a different focus. Uh, the Health and Human Service Committee is going to be chaired by Kevin Conwell. It is expanded to include the arts as well. Carrie McCormick is ex uh, heading up the Transportation Committee. And it's not just looking at, you know, roads. It's looking at regional transportation policy and then non-vehicle forms of transportation like rail, bicycles, e-bikes, and scooters. Obviously, scooters have had their own controversy in Cleveland. And the Workforce and Community Benefits Committee, chaired by Jasmine Santana, will now inc include education and youth development to look at a comprehensive approach to all the policies, how they impact, ch impact children and the workforce opportunities. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a big set of changes. Mike Polensic was the public safety chair in, it re, in previous iterations. Uh, I'm sure he's very happy to be back in that role. He has a lot to say about policing and safety in this community. 
Uh, and he's a bit of a firebrand, so could be fun to see how he goes about bringing accountability. I mean, do you think maybe if we have another riot, he'll actually hold a hearing, unlike his predecessor, Matt Zone, who had a police officer on the department? Say, well, Mike Clentz never... doesn't have a son in the police department, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so I hope well, there's more transparency. I mean, it's been two days. Uh, we're on our third day with, with Justin Bibb at the helm, and it'll be, uh, well, and then Blaine Griffin, obviously, is the one making these changes. So it'll be interesting what, to see how City Hall changes. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What are 100 school districts arguing in their just-filed lawsuit against the state of Ohio about school vouchers? Lisa, you don't often see 100 school districts get together to do anything. They must have a pretty serious purpose here. Yeah, these districts form uh, the Ohio Coalition for Equity and Advocacy of School Funding. Um, This includes three from the Northeast Ohio area, Cleveland Heights, University Heights, Richmond Heights, and Elyria City. Now, together, um, this suit, these 100 school districts are... uh, Uh, 47 of 88 counties in Ohio. It represents about 250,000 students. So basically the crux of their lawsuit is they say that the private school vouchers violate the Ohio Constitution, specifically Article 6, that is is supposed to ensure a thorough and efficient system of common schools. And so they they see that the siphoning of these voucher money from public schools to private schools is, is affecting that mission and is unconstitutional on its face. Uh, There are five voucher programs uh, throughout the state that um, right now there's about 69,700 private school scholarships in the state of Ohio, $250 million worth, as a matter of fact. Um, One of those is the Cleveland Scholarship Program, which is, you know, for Cleveland Municipal School District students. And it was the very first in the nation years ago to include religious schools. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I have my own strong opinions about this. I'm going to try and leave it out for now. But um, Richmond Heights, Nanika Jackson, she spoke at the press conference yesterday and she's a member of the school board. She said that she feels like that the private school voucher program actually enabled white flight. Richmond Heights population is about 40% white. Their school population, the students beforehand, you know, before vouchers, it was 26% uh, white from K through 12, 74% people of color K through 12. But afterward, the students dropped to only 3% white and 97% uh, students of color. And others are saying that this is like, in effect, a resegregation since, you know, uh, the thing with vouchers, they don't pay the whole tuition. So parents will have to make up the difference between what the the voucher provides and what the actual tuition price is. Uh, The uh, board member from the Cleveland Heights University Heights School District, Dan Heinz, says they lose so much money to vouchers that it triggers property tax levies in their area. And he claims that 95% of these vouchers go to students in his district who never attended a Cleveland Heights or University Heights school. So he sees it as fleeing tuition, not a failing school. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And, you know, the people who filed this suit know that it's going to take years to go through the court, uh, just like a a previous ruling back about 20 years ago. So it'll be interesting to see how this works through the the system. Well, the courts have not been opposed to vouchers across the land. Uh, I don't know, though. I guess we'd have to do the research. Has anybody ever made it a civil rights case where it's really about racial discrimination? The numbers coming out of Richmond Heights, 
would be very strong evidence that that's the goal of this, or at least the effect of this. And I'm not sure that that's ever been brought before. Fascinating. It'd be fascinating strategy if they employ that. But you're right. It will take many years to get to the bottom of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're finally into 2022, the year of the actual election for Ohio's U.S. Senate seat. You would have thought that election was in 2021, given how much campaigning was going on. The Republican field remains crowded. Seth, we got you back as the political expert. What are the candidates doing the past couple of months to distinguish themselves for the voters? And I guess you should start with the Bernie Moreno commercials because everybody is so sick of them. Yeah, you know, I kept seeing that during uh, football, which is really the only time I ever watch live television and uh, kept seeing, you know, frankly, I thought it was a bit of a it was a weird commercial, both in terms of the pitch. And also, I didn't understand the setting because it just kind of looked like he was hanging out under a bridge. Right. And let's point out (laughs) that is where trolls hang out. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, I'm just thinking like, you know, no, like nothing good happens under a bridge. So I I don't know. It just seemed a little weird to me, but uh, yeah. So, you know, those have been, you know, blanketed all over and seen everywhere. There's been a lot of online criticism of that. I said, you know, especially some of the the messaging that came out of it, where he, uh, he, he called for English to be the, the national or the official language of the United States, which is a, um, I, I, I don't know, I guess I don't know any delicate way to put it. It's just like a weird, like retro kind of, you know, people used to say that like back during the Bush years. I don't know. I just haven't really heard it kind of pitched in quite some time. It just seems like an odd uh, uh, campaign plank to, you know, uh, film a commercial on. I don't, I don't know that that many people care about it as much anymore, but right, yeah, so, so that, that, that was interesting. So uh, Moreno, Moreno is way over on the fringe. What are the others doing? Well, this Which week Vance up to, Oh, you know, he's been uh, kind of keeping steady with those Fox news uh, hits and going on some of the podcasts and, you know, really sort of uh, basically kind of trying to continue to, you know, transform himself and sort of make himself not who he used to be, which was, you know, a pretty vocal Trump critic and kind of this uh, a liberal darling of sorts, right, through his, you know, writing and this kind of erudite sort of guy. He's uh, um, really sort of embraced that uh, grow the beard kind of thing, right, and uh, trying to not be who he <laughs> formerly was. Um, and I think you're going to continue to see that, right? And I mean, just really kind of hammer down on it. Uh, there, there, there doesn't seem to be any signs of it uh, slowing yeah, but- up. But does it play to Ohioans? He's getting national attention, but is he getting state attention? I know it's hard to tell, but it seems like he's focused on getting attention, but not necessarily the attention he needs. What about Jane Timken? When this started, the former Ohio Republican chair, seemingly one of the more, it's hard to say this, sane candidates in this thing. What is she doing to try and get some attention? Because you just don't see as much about her. Well, well, before we jump to her, I do want to say that, you know, Mike Gibbons or some um, uh, proponents of Mike Gibbons put out a commercial against J.D. Vance, basically kind of what I thought was going to happen from the get go, basically playing those statements that he made against Trump sort of just over and over about him saying that Trump is incompetent and a danger. And that does leave the question of if he is going to play with Ohioans who, you know, especially Ohio Republicans who we know really like Trump. Yeah. And as far as Jane Timken, you know, she really kind of hopped on to the uh, the sort of critical race theory based 
bandwagon after the election and has really been talking about that. You know, I think she is probably going to be able to build up a little more than people expect, whether it's enough to win. I don't know um, that that's kind of the study of this, you know, sort of bread and butter campaign, what the Republican Party has basically done for the past two, three decades in the state that's, you know, been wildly successful. So we'll have to see if that happens. She did come. She did roll out a, a, a semi big endorsement this week of Elise Stefanik from New York, although I I think it's probably worth noting that Elise Stefanik is not a senator of any kind and she's not from Ohio. So who knows how much that really matters. But, um, you know, Stefanik in her own right has become kind of a, uh, a minor celebrity in sort of the uh, Trump uh, orbit, a former Trump critic herself, I should add as well. Um, All right. Let's talk about Josh Mandel, the king of pointless and mean spirited Twitter traffic. Well, I think you just kind of said it yourself. <laughs> yeah, just 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 a lot of weird tweets coming out. He 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 posted something um, on Tuesday that I thought was very odd, where he he reposted the video of him burning the mask inside, which is probably you know not safe. You're not really supposed to set fires inside. And he said that you know he was feeling like Antonio Brown, and it really perplexed a lot of us because we don't we I don't get the analogy because like what. For those who don't know, Antonio Brown walked off the field like in the middle of a play during Sunday and basically quit with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But I couldn't I don't don't quite get what he was going for, because the only thing that was going through my mind was, well, if you're using that analogy, the the Buccaneers actually performed better after Antonio Brown quit. (laughs) Well, and let's remember, Seth, he did walk off the field in a previous run. That's that's, that's actually that's a very good point. So he should feel like Antonio Brown. He left the Republican Party with no candidate. They ended up dealing with Jim Renese, who got slaughtered. So he's very familiar with just walking away with no explanation. Maybe it's a sign he's going to do so again. (laughs) The, The one that I'm a little bit surprised by is Matt Dolan, who is the sane candidate in this race, kind of the the old fashioned conservative, pretty well respected in Northeast Ohio. And we've said from the beginning that that there was a path to be the non-Trump candidate, not the anti-Trump candidate, but just the one that's not a sycophant begging for, for the benediction of the former president. But he has been completely ineffective in his messaging these last two months. You've seen almost nothing to put him into the spotlight. Yeah. And I'm, I'm skeptical of if that sort of, you know, like that divorce from Trump thing, how much that is going to matter because, you know, it's, we're coming on a year since Trump has really like his messaging has really not been at the forefront. Um, even necessarily of the Republican party. Right. Um, it's still, of course it still means a lot and it's very heavy, but you've seen a lot of people really move on to these topics, you know, critical race theory, inflation, those kinds of things. So it, it, it may be a case of, if you don't have just kind of the base message that works. And when I say base message, I don't mean just like a message for the base. I mean, just kind of a um, bedrock message of sorts. Then, I mean, it might just be like any other campaign. However, it is probably worth noting that he has reserved some ad time for uh, TV buys that are slated to go up after the filing deadline. So he very clearly is intent on running. And I mean, maybe we'll get a better sense of what the kind of messaging that is going to come from when we start seeing some of those ads and when he starts kind of doing a a harder push. I think the other thing like to consider with Dolan is that we are still a little ways away from 
you know, the, the primary. So there's enough time for, you know, you to come in and uh, kind of try to shoot yourself up a little bit, right. To really kind of uh, take your campaign to the next level. So I, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad strategy or anything like that. It's just, you know, who knows if it'll work in such a crowded field. Well, and we are going to get short on time unless the primary gets postponed because of all of the redistricting and other races. So, but we got five months. I mean, it's, it's, this is go time. How do you put yourself ahead of the others to get into the final? Uh, I know a lot of Northeast Iowa Republicans are really worried it's going to be Josh Mandel because they think that gives the a much bigger chance to the Democrats to take the seat. They just don't want it to be Josh <laughs> Mandel. They would much prefer Matt Dolan, but it doesn't seem like that's that's happening. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do we know about Shane Bartek, the off-duty Cleveland police officer who was killed in a carjacking on the final day of 2021? Laura, it's taken a little while to to get the details about him because people have been dealing first with the tragedy of his death. Um, but lots of people now are speaking out about what a nice guy he was. Yeah, absolutely. His friends say he was relentlessly positive in the life of the party that he could make a good time, whether they were going on a trip or helping to remodel a bathroom. So he was only 25 years old. He grew up in Middleburg Heights. He has a twin sister and an older brother. And his dad passed away in 2018. So I guess after that happened, he was obviously very upset, but he decided that he would really focus on his relationships with his friends and um, his family and and make the most of them. So he had played goalie for Berea Mid Park High School soccer team. He won the Southwest Conference Championships. That team did his junior and senior seasons. And he went to the University of Cincinnati where he graduated with a degree in criminal justice and was hired in 2019 to be a police officer with the city of Cleveland. His friends said that wasn't surprising at all. They, they knew he was a real community man. He wanted to serve people and make sure everyone around him was able to live in a place that they loved and that was safe. They said it was his calling and that he, he really kept in touch with, with everyone. He was the linchpin of their friend group. And even as people moved away, he stayed in touch. So obviously a lot of people are hurting this week um, at the loss of Shane Bartek. The the revelations that are coming out of this case and some of the other carjacking cases is the leniency both adult court judges and juvenile court judges are showing when people use guns in crimes. The the woman that's accused of killing him has had a history of mm-hmm. using guns in crime. And that, that, you know, we talk all the time about justice reform, but that's really aimed at mental illness and nonviolent crime. We, we've all presumed that if you use a gun in a crime based on everything the federal government has said and the Justice Department, that you're going away. You're not going to get probation. But, but in case after case, it appears judges are just letting people walk, and this is the result. Once somebody uses a gun in a crime, you're crossing a line, and it's so much more dangerous. Um, it'll be interesting to see how judges respond to this in the future and whether there's any accountability for the ones that are letting people walk. I agree with you. When you read about an 18-year-old woman accused of shooting someone in a in the back twice and killing them in a carjacking, you're thinking an 18-year-old woman, like how does this, how, how does that happen? But she has a long history in the courts many times and she was on uh, she was out on several cases. There was uh, also while she's being held right now, she's being held for a robbery of a pizza place and it goes on and on. And, and she's been before the court multiple times and she was 16 and before that. So this is not the first time that she's come before a judge. And yeah, you're right. It is, it is scary. 
Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. We're a podcast. We, we appreciate people who listen to podcasts, and we want to help promote a new podcast. What is Cleveland's new sustainability podcast called, and what is the audience for it? Lisa? It's called EcoSpeak Clee, or EcoSpeak Cleveland. It's hosted by longtime recycling advocate Diane Bickett, who was also the former executive director at the Cuyahoga County Solid Waste District. She got the idea from her daughter's boyfriend, of all things. Um, his name is Greg Rutuno. He also produces is um, EcoSpeak Cleveland. He's a Worcester native. What what Diane and Greg want to do is they want to reinvigorate the whole local sustainability movement that kind of died off back in the early 2000s. And they want to reach a new generation of advocates who are eager to learn about sustainability. Younger generations are more interested in the, you know, the footprint they're leaving behind in the world and fixing the damage that us boomers did, I guess. But um, yeah, so they, they want to, you know, reinvigorate this movement and and reach a whole new audience that seems eager to learn about it. Their first episode uh, featured, they talked about the old sustainability movement in Cleveland, which was known as Entrepreneurs for Sustainability, or E4S. It dissolved about 20 years ago, and the first guests were Pat and Dan Conway of Great Lakes Brewing, who are big sustainability people. The second episode dropped yesterday, and it's about, they're talking about the, the program in Brooklyn where they're tagging trash carts to let people know how to encourage you know, to encourage them to recycle properly and put the right things in the recycling bin. You can find EcoSpeak Cleveland wherever you find podcasts, or you can go to their website at ecospeakcle.com. It is free, but Ms. Bickett and Mr. Rotuna said they hope to pick up a sponsor or two as they go along. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Has Annette Blackwell already suspended her campaign for Cuyahoga County Executive? And is it possible that the reason is that Brad Sellers is making a special announcement at 1.30 today? And the reason we know that is we got a press release about it that says Brad Sellers for County Executive. Seth? Yeah, it seems like she was trying to speed run the campaign process of some kind. I don't know that I've ever seen such a quick turnaround from announcement to suspension um, of her campaign. But yes, she, you know, she suspended her campaign, said she wanted to, you know, focus on her job as Maple Heights mayor, which I, I don't know how much changed in Maple Heights over the past month. But I think it's some pretty safe speculation that Brad Sellers, the Warrensville Heights mayor, probably has something to do with it. Um, you know, he's he's a well-known guy, well-liked guy. I should probably say that he's got, you know, some pretty solid connections. He's very close with Marsha Fudge. So I'm sure that played at least a little part into it. But uh, yeah, pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty quick. And, you know, I guess her campaign, you know, insisted that the campaign was suspended, not necessarily defunct. But I have never heard of a campaign coming back from suspension, um, at least any successful one, that's for sure. Well, the campaign fumbles from the start. I mean, they put up a release on a website and when people called, instead of confirming she was running, they took it down and it had errors in it. And it was, I mean, it was the whole thing has been odd and then to summarily end it. But I do suspect it has everything to do with Brad Sellers getting in. Chris Ronane, longtime university circle chief is running. He started running last summer. Um, and now it seems Brad Sellers is running because it says Brad Sellers for county executive on this press release. <laughs> I imagine he's going to make that announcement at 1.30, but when it says it on the press release, kind of makes the announcement already, uh, which I mean, the voters will get a good debate. You know, Seller, like you said, Sellers has been around a while. He, um, he, he's been the mayor of Warrensville Heights and he has the, the basketball 
popularity. So we'll have to we'll have to see how that race goes. And then waiting in the wings is Republican Lee Weingarten. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting matchup for that uh, that race. All things considered, two two very interesting candidates. Well, remember too, four years ago there was no challenge, not in the primary, not in the general, and we end up with the disastrous term of Armin Budish, where people are dying in the jail and cost overruns. I mean, there's been so much that's gone wrong. Uh, so at least voters will get to make choices this time. It'll be interesting to see whether they just go with the party endorsement. Do you think the party will endorse the Democratic Party or do you think they'll let the candidates go and seek the votes themselves? I, I don't know. That's a really difficult call, right? Because, you know, Brad Sellers has a lot of connections in the county party. He's close with Chantel Brown, who, you know, is still the party chair. Like I said, he's very close with Marsha Fudge, who, you know, isn't here doing the day to day, but still hold, you know, holds a lot of weight here. Uh, that said, you know, we kind of saw in the mayor's race, at least a preview a little bit of this sort of um, you know, uh, nascent kind of progressive movement, right, for Justin Bibb. And I know a lot of people who like Justin Bibb are really on the Chris Ronan train there. So um, whether oh, there will be a... Can't. How do you call Chris Ronan a progressive? He ran University Circle for 16 years. Well, it's, it's, it's sort of these strange dynamics that Cleveland politics have, right, where, you know, it's, yeah, it, I, I agree. But it's, it's, it's more what I'm talking about is sort of the groups of supporters, not necessarily the policies there, you know, of themselves. Okay. It's today in Ohio. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you, Seth. Good to have you back. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back on Thursday with another discussion of the news. 